Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Well, today we are diving back into the book of Mark. It's a sermon series that we call The Simple Gospel, where we're taking the better part of two years, walking verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, through the book of Mark, so that way we can see who Jesus is, how Jesus lives, and how we can live our lives for Jesus. And the sermon title today is called Jesus Feeds 4,000. We're going to see a miracle. We're going to see one of the greatest miracles recorded in all of the scripture that Jesus, with just a lunchable, is going to feed 4,000 people. Just a little bread, just a couple of pieces of fish. He's going to pray over it, bless it, break it, multiply it. And we're going to see one of the greatest miracles. Jesus is going to feed 4,000 people. And some of you are like, Haven't I heard this one before? (laughs) Haven't we already talked about this before? Right, if you've been hanging out with us for a while, you might remember that in Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000. That Jesus would take just a few pieces of fish and a few pieces of bread, pray, break, bless it, multiply it, and feed a whole multitude of people. And now what we see is this, that Jesus is actually going to do it again. You think, well, why would he do this? Isn't this the same miracle twice? Okay, well, actually, it's a little bit different. Okay, yes, Jesus is going to use some fish and some bread, break it, bless it, multiply it, feed 5,000. No, this time he's going to feed 4,000. It's a similar story with similar circumstances, but there's one really big idea that Jesus wants to show us, and it's this, is that he can do and he wants to do, and I believe that he will do a miracle in your life. Jesus feeds 4,000 people because just in case you missed it the first time, he's going to show it to you again. Jesus is going to feed 4,000 people, but if you remember to the time I preached Jesus feeds 5,000, You might remember that I have really boring sermon titles. Have anybody noticed that? Like, Pastor Byron, like, you're so fired up and energetic when you preach. Why are your sermon titles so boring? Right, because if you really get to know me, I'm a little boring. You think, well, how come, like, you know, other pastors, they have such cool sermon titles. Well, I'm not a cool pastor, so I have boring sermon titles. Like, I just call things what it is. There's actually two reasons that I, I do it that way. Okay, the first reason is I'm not clever. Like, I'm just not that smart. I put a lot of prep in for the sermon. Just figuring out a title in the end just gives me anxiety. Just not, not I just call, I just say, hey, here's what it is. Um, and so that's me. The second reason is that I want these sermons to be easily archivable for you. So let's just say in five years, you're reading through the gospel of Mark and you come across the story where Jesus casts out a demon. Guess what that sermon's called? Jesus cast out a demon. Let's say you're, you're reading through it and, and you, you read that story where Jesus calms the storm and you're like, Pastor Byron preached over this. I know he did. And then you go through iTunes and you're scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And then you're like, what was that sermon where Jesus calms the storm? Jesus calms the storm. Do you see what I'm saying? Like maybe you're, you're having a conversation with somebody and they're really struggling and, and, and there's, there, there's a season where the storms of life are raging, there's trials, there's testing, and you're like, I need to tell them about that sermon where Jesus calms the storm. What was that one called again? Oh, Jesus calms the storm. What was the one where Jesus walks on water? What was that one called? Jesus walks on water. <laughs> what about the sermon where Jesus fed 5,000? What did we call that one? Jesus feeds (laughs) 5,000. But I did say this. If I ever got a chance to preach this text again, 
I wouldn't call it Jesus Feeds 5,000. Do you know what I would call it? I was going to call that sermon, How to Make a Miracle, because that's exactly what we saw in that text, that Jesus shows them not only can he do it, but that he wants to do it. And we saw when Jesus fed 5,000, he's like, here's how to make a miracle. And here we are, two chapters later, the exact same thing. So guess what I'm going to call this sermon? Jesus feeds 4,000. Okay, do you know why? Because this isn't about how to make a miracle. This is a little bit different. This story is how you miss a miracle. How many times in your life have you missed a miracle in front of you? How many times in your life have God been working and you just not be watching? How many times in your life has God been moving, but you're too busy focusing on yourself, looking at everything else that you missed out on what God was doing right there in front of you? How many times in our lives have we missed the miracle because we were not paying attention? That's exactly what we're going to see today. Jesus does the same miracle a second time because you missed it the first time. So if you have your Bibles, turn with you to Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We're going to work our way all the way through verse 21. If you didn't get your Bible reading in this morning, you are in luck. You've come to the right place because guess what we're going to do? We're going to read our Bible. And we got a lot of Bible. I want to give you four reasons that you miss the miracle in your life. The first reason that we miss the miracle is this, is that we have a problem, but he has provision. Here's how we see it. In those days, okay, let's pause right there. Okay, I promise you we're going to get through the whole text. I know we just made it three words, but we're going to make it, I, I promise. In those days, well, what does that mean? Here we are in Mark chapter 8. It's the halfway point for the, the, the book of Mark. It's 16 chapters. Mark chapter 8, the first eight chapters, we were just getting to know who Jesus is. And then now for the rest of the book, we're going to be looking at what Jesus does. In those days, Jesus now has left Galilee. He's entered into the Decapolis, which is a Gentile pagan region. If you remember to last week's sermon, Jesus goes out of his way to be able to reach those who are far from him. And so in Mark chapter 6, when he fed the 5,000, he was in Galilee. That was a Jewish region. And now in Mark chapter 8, he is in the Decapolis. That's a Gentile region. He's out ministering to people who are far from him. And then it says that there was, a again, a great crowd. And we're going to notice in a little bit that's 4,000 people. And that day, that is unprecedented. In our day, it would still be quite a big crowd, 4,000 people. But back then, in the middle of nowhere, to have 4,000 people is actually unheard of. Most cities at that time were about 50, maybe 200 people. So to have uh, um, the, the 10 regions, to have the, all of the, that pagan territory come flock to Jesus was a pretty big deal. See, we kind of have this idea in our mind that Jesus was this first century peasant who just kind of, you know, walked around with his 12 friends wearing a dress and driving, you know, a, a, a Prius and sitting under a tree, just giving the peace sign, saying, everybody love everybody. Here's some Zen Ziegler quotes and sitting in the lotus position, drinking decaf. That's kind of how most people think Jesus is. He was just this guy out doing his own thing. Actually, that's not true. We see here, Jesus is pretty famous. I mean, people are traveling from everywhere to come and hear from him. He was a really big deal. Like, he would be number one on iTunes. He'd be trending on Twitter. He'd be in your suggested post feed on Instagram. Like, everybody would be talking about Jesus. They're flocking to him. They want to know, who is this Jesus guy? What is he doing? What is he going to say? And so there was a great crowd that had gathered around them. I tell you that just to be able to set up the scene. And they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away to their homes, they will faint along the way. And some of them have come from a far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, 
how many loaves do you have? You're like, oh, I see where this is going. They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that, that they should set it before them, and they ate, and they were satisfied, and they took up about 4,000, um, they picked... <laughs> They took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into his boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalamanutha. Here we see that Jesus has actually been teaching for how long? Three days. Okay, Jesus is a preacher, teacher, and then everyone gathers around right there in that region. And then Jesus is preaching for three whole days. I do three services. Jesus preached three days. Some of y'all think my sermons are long. Just imagine if Jesus was your preacher, right? Three entire days. Now, some of you might think, well, Byron, if you preached like Jesus, I wouldn't have a problem sitting for three whole days. But nevertheless, Jesus, he's preaching for three entire days. And after three days, he's like, I bet these people are hungry, right? The 11 o'clock service, always look at your watch. You're like, okay, when's he wrapping up? I got dinner reservations, right? And so three whole days, Jesus like, hey, I think these people might be hungry. We need to do something about that. And what we notice is this, that, that Jesus recognizes the need that the people are in. If you look down to verse 2, what it says is this, that he had compassion on them. In the Greek, that word compassion is spalagnon. Can y'all say that? Spalagnon. There you go. Y'all sound so smart. You learn something new every single day. Spalagnon. And what that word means is guts. Right? It means that it's in the stomach, the pit of his stomach. It's where we would get the term today, gut-wrenching. That in the bottom of his being, he is heartbroken over these people. Why? Because he sees that they are hungry. He sees that they are hurting. He sees that they are in need. And he sees that they have a very big problem. And it says that he actually has compassion on them. He can't just send them away because he knows if I send them away while they're still hungry, they're going to pass out. They're going to faint. They might get hurt. They might get injured. Something bad might happen to them. And so Jesus, he needs to come up with a plan because he's experienced a very big problem. Just imagine what would happen if Jesus sent them away without taking care of them. Could you just imagine how the headlines would go? Right, this sermon would not be called Jesus feeds 4,000, it would be Jesus kills 4,000. Like that's, that just doesn't preach very well. Right, could you imagine like CNN, Fox News, they're all debating, they're like, well, did Jesus do the right thing? He should have fed those people, he sent them away. And then it's trending everywhere on Twitter, people are freaking out, Jesus just killed 4,000 people, oh my God. Like it's just not gonna be a good story. So Jesus says, there's a problem. We need to do something about this problem. And see, Jesus, they, they couldn't just, you know, call up Chick-fil-A and have them send 4,000 spicy chicken sandwiches to be able to feed all of these people. I know it's the Lord's chicken, but that ain't what he did. You know, if you think about it, he didn't take them to Castle and say, okay, we'll all get one entree and then everybody has chips and dip and we'll just pass that around. That's not what he did either. No, Jesus, he's like, we have a problem. We need to do something about it. So he turns to the disciples and, and here's what he says. He's like, we got to feed all these people because there's a very big problem. Now you would think that the disciples, they would be like, He's going to do it again. This is amazing. I love this miracle. It's when Jesus feeds all the people. Like he takes the bread and he takes the fish. We get a nice fish sandwich. 4,000 people are going to get fed. This is my favorite miracle. It's Jesus and food. Woohoo! That's amazing. Right, but that's not what the disciples do. You know what the disciples say instead? How are we going to feed all of these people with this bread in this desolate place. See, the disciples were only looking at the problem. See, Jesus already fed 5,000 people. He's already done this miracle, but now there's another chance, there's another moment, there's another opportunity, and they missed it. Why? Because all they were thinking about was the problem. See, some people, you miss your miracle because all you focus on is the problems that are in front of you. 
You just look at the circumstance. You're so consumed with the situation that you're in, and all you focus on is the problem that's in front of you. And what you fail to recognize is that he is your provision that he's done it before, he's going to do it again, because you're so focused on the problems. He says, hey, stop thinking about your problems and bring them to me. And the big idea, why does Jesus repeat this sermon, this, this miracle one more time? Why does Jesus repeat this one more time? Because you missed it the first time. He says, hey, I want you to know, if you bring your problems to me, then I love to be able to provide for you. I meet people all the time who they focus on their problems and they miss out on the miracle. When people will come forward for prayer, at the end of the service, every single week, we have, a, we have a time for prayer and response. And people come forward for prayer, and they say, I want to pray for my job. I lost my job. I need a job. And I said, okay, great. Let me pray for you to get a job. And then we begin praying. And as soon as we say amen, guess what they start talking about? Their problems again. Well, I lost that job, and you know this happened over here, and that was a really good job. And they cut my hours, and it seems like this happens all the time. I'm like, hey, did we not? just pray? Yeah, we prayed, but, well, you know, the last job I had, this happened. I'm like, hey, is that a problem or is that provision? You're missing your miracle because all you're thinking about is the problem. Or people come forward about, you know, I need, uh, they're sick or we're going to pray and we believe that God's going to heal them. And as they come forward, we're holding hands and we're saying, okay, I'm going to believe that God's going to heal you. And they say, well, I got a doctor appointment next week. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to pray for that too. And they just put me on new medication. Okay, we're going to pray for that too. And, you know, I've had this for like six months now. Okay, we're going to pray for that too. Well, you know, my sister has this too. And they're like, okay, we're going to pray for her. Hey, what's the problem? Do you believe he has provision? You're talking yourself out of a miracle because all you do is look at the problem. Right? People come forward and they, they want prayer for their marriage. I'm like, well, I'm going to pray for your marriage. I'm going to believe that God's going to do something great in your marriage. Well, my husband's never going to change. Okay? That's a problem. And it's not his problem. That's your problem because all you're looking at is the problem. See, some people, they focus on the problem and they miss out on the miracle that is right in front of them. Either you believe he can or you believe he can't. Either way, you're right because you're still thinking about the problem. See, the disciples, they're thinking about the problem. How are we going to feed all these people? How are we going to take care of all these people? How are we going to meet the needs for all these people? We don't have enough bread. There's not enough fish. We're in the middle of a desolate place, in the middle of nowhere. We have a problem, and they forgot that he loves to provide for them. You missed your miracle because you were so focused on the problem, you forgot that he loves to be able to provide for you. And so Jesus here, he's going to do it again. He says, come on, let's do it again. How much bread do you got? How many fish do you got? How many people are there? Come on, guys, just think about this. Let's do it again. And what Jesus is showing is this. If you bring your problems to me, then I love to be able to provide for you. But do you know what I've discovered in my life? Sometimes Jesus is the last place I go when I'm in need. Anybody else feel that? That Jesus is the last place you go when you are in need. Why do you think that's so? Why do you think the last place we go is to Jesus? The last place we bring our problems is to the one who provides. Do you know what I think it is? I think it's because we think our problems are bigger than his provision. That we think the circumstance or the situation that we are in is bigger than him. That you have more faith in your problems than you have faith in his provision. You, you, you believe more in your problems than you believe in his provisions. Your problems are more real to you than he is to be able to provide for you. The reason we don't go to God in prayer when we are in need or when we are suffering or when we are hurting is because we think our problems are bigger than him. Do you really think your marriage problems are bigger than his marriage provision? He invented marriage. Come on. Do you really think your financial problems are bigger than him? 
right? The prophet Micah says, the, the, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, I own a cattle on a thousand hills, that's mine, right? Do you think your financial problems are bigger than him? Do you think that your work-related problems are bigger than him? Do you think that your children problems are bigger than him? Do you think your GPA problems are bigger than him? Do you think your mental health, your emotional health, your physical problems are bigger than him? His provision is bigger than your problems. Here he takes seven loaves and a few fish and feeds how many? 4,000. Just two chapters earlier, he did the same thing and he fed how many? 5,000. Some people would read this and why the 4,000 doesn't get the attention that it deserves is because you would think this is a lesser miracle. This is not a lesser miracle. This is a greater and more important miracle. Why? Because you missed it the first time. He's got to do it for you again. He says, listen to me. Bring your problems to me. I love to provide for you. How many baskets were left over? Seven. There's more than enough left over for you. Bring your problems to him. Jesus is like, guys, We've done this. We've been here. We've gone through this over and over and over again. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know. If you bring them to me, I will provide for you. And then the disciples get to experience for the second time the greatest miracle recorded in the Bible. And Jesus is saying to them, hey, I want you to know, bring them to me. Bring your problems to me. And I will show you over and over and over again that I love to provide for you. Some people miss their miracle because all they see is their problem and they don't see his provision. The second reason is this. Some people miss a miracle because we want a sign and he wants to save. The story, it continues. The Pharisees came and they began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and he went to the other side. After feeding about 4,000 people, meeting their needs, loving, serving, helping them, Jesus, he gets back in the boat And then he heads across to the other side. As soon as he steps off the boat with his disciples, guess who is his welcoming committee? It's the Pharisees. Swamp, womp. The Pharisees show back up one more time. We meet the Pharisees. And the the Pharisees, they are the hardcore, religious, legalistic, law-making, rule-keeping, fundamental type. They're all mental and no fun. That's the Pharisees. And they have a big, long you know, list of all the things that you must do or you can't do or you don't fit in with us. And Jesus comes and he doesn't fit into their list. He doesn't look according to the way that they thought that he was supposed to be. And so they were the sworn enemies of Jesus. If you remember with this through Mark, repeatedly there have been fights and, and, and conflicts that Jesus has been getting in with these Pharisees. And that's the same thing we see happen Yet again, if you look at the word right here in verse 11, it says the Pharisees came to, what's the word? Argue. In fact, that word argue is a military term that is used. It means to war or to battle or to to have a skirmish. It's to be engaged in conflict. And the Pharisees, they come to Jesus, not because they love him, but because they want to fight with him. They come to Jesus, not because they want to learn from him, but because they want to argue with him. They say, Jesus, we need you to give us a sign. They've come to to argue. They've come to fight. They've come to get into a debate with Jesus. They want to have war with Jesus. And it's all over this issue that they demand a sign. Now, you would think after feeding 4,000 people, that would be enough for them. They're like, Jesus, this this fish taco was delicious. Thank you so much. You must be the son of God. Right? You would think that that would be enough for them. That over and over again, the Pharisees, they've seen Jesus. 
They've seen the miracles. They've seen the healings. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him feed 5,000. Now they see him feed 4,000. Now you would think that that would be enough for the Pharisees, but nope, here they come one more time demanding a sign from Jesus. Some people, no matter what you do, they're just not going to believe. But on the other hand, you'd read and you think, come on, Jesus, just give them a sign. Just give them a sign, something special, something just for them. Just go ahead, do it, Jesus. Come on, you've been doing miracles and you've been doing signs all across the whole region. Come on, Jesus, you can do it again. And what I find interesting is that for the crowd, he would do it again, but for these men, they get nothing. Why do you think that on one side, Jesus would say to the crowd, okay, come on, let me show you one more time. Why would he go to the disciples and say, okay, let's do this one more time. And then when he meets the Pharisees, he says this, no sign will be given to you. And then he gets back in the boat and he's gone. Well, there's actually three reasons that Jesus would do this. Because the Pharisees here, they're demanding a sign. And my fear is, especially in a 21st century culture where everything needs to have empirical evidence and fit into our own rationale, we end up being just like the Pharisees to where when we come to God, we demand he do what we tell him to do. There's three dangers that come demanding a sign. The first thing we see that the Pharisees do is they, they actually, they test Jesus. They say, okay, Jesus, you think you're something special? You think you're something so great? Well, okay, well, do a trick for us. If you really think you are who you say that you are, well, do a miracle, do a sign, do a wonder. Come on, Jesus, chop, chop, let's see it. You think you're some big deal. They, they actually test Jesus. And then Jesus says, no, I am not gonna give you this this sign. What's interesting is if you're familiar with the Bible, Mark is making a very important parallel back to the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, God used a man named Moses, who was a prophet, to be able to deliver his people from the promise, from, from Egypt into the promised land. And as he is delivering them from Egypt into the promised land, what do the people do in the wilderness? They're grumbling, they're backbiting, they're, they're murmuring, they're complaining, they're arguing. And all throughout the book of Exodus, they're saying, God, you brought us out here, you need to do something about it. So over and over again, God gives them sign after sign after sign. He gives them a cloud by day. He gives them fire by night. He gives them manna from heaven, which is symbolic for feeding the multitudes of people. He provides them quail. He provides them water from a rock. Their shoes never, their shoes never go out. He takes a snake, puts it on a pole, and anybody who looks at it is automatically instantly healed. And guess what? The people still did not believe him. This is why here in a sec, it says, you generation seek a sign. In the story of Exodus, the entire generation had to pass away before they could ever enter into the promised land because the whole time, all they wanted to do was test God. They didn't want to trust him. So whenever Moses is writing the book of Deuteronomy and God's giving laws, here's actually what Moses says. In Deuteronomy 6.16, it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massa. What he's saying is this, that you're saying, he's saying you missed the miracle and your heart was so hard and you demanded a sign, you missed out what he was doing. He came to save, not just to give you a sign. And that so often, many people want to test God. How many times in your life have you put God to the test to where you say, just like the Pharisees, where you would say this, God, if you would do this, then I would believe in you. 
God, if you would just fill in the blank, then I will believe in you. Whatever your blank is, just think about it. And you say, okay, God, if you come through this time, then I'll do this for you. God, if you could be good to me this time, well, then I'm going to believe in you. God, if you could just pass my test, then I will trust in you. No sign will be given to you. Jesus didn't come that you might test him. Jesus came that you would trust him. Jesus didn't come just to give you a sign. Jesus came so that you might be saved. Well, the second thing that happens is this. Not only do they test him, but they also grieve him. Here in the text, it says this, that, that he, is, he sighs deep in his spirit. You think that's interesting because I remember last week, that Jesus met a deaf and, blo- uh, deaf and mute man, and as he did, he sighed deep in his spirit. Well, isn't that kind of the same thing? It's similar, but it's a little bit different. The first time he sighed in his spirit was out of a compassion or an anguish for the man. He would see the man hurting and broken in his need, and he would be so moved in anguish that people would be suffering. He reaches into that man's life, he opens up his heart, and then he heals him. Here... It says he sighs not out of anguish, but rather out of anger. That he is very upset. He is frustrated with these Pharisees. Why? Because they are demanding a sign. Just think about it. The Pharisees, they're the religious leaders. They're the ones who are supposed to be familiar with the Bible. They're the ones who are supposed to be leading his people, but instead they've become just like wicked Israel. That these people, they have so misled all of the people that God's come to save. Their hearts are so hard. Their minds are made up. Their eyes are closed. Their ears are closed. And they don't care anything that Jesus is going to do. And they come to put him to a test. And they want to argue. And they want to demand a sign from him. And here Jesus' heart in this moment is grieved. You know, there's some people that No matter what you do, they will not believe. And that grieves Jesus' heart. You know, there's some people, no matter how much you argue with them, it doesn't matter. They're just not going to believe. Their hearts are hard, and Jesus' heart is grieved. I was talking with a guy not too long ago, and here's, here's what he said. He said this to me. He said, you know, I would believe in Jesus if he would just show up. He said, he already did, and you still don't believe. The Pharisees were face to face with Jesus, and they wanted to argue with him instead of fall on their knees and worship him. If Jesus were to present himself to you right now, you still wouldn't believe. The Pharisees didn't believe because your heart is already so hard. There's nothing he could say. There's nothing he could do. There's no sign he could give you that would change your mind. Some people's hearts are just so hard, and it grieves Jesus' heart. Which leads us to the last point. The third danger of demanding a sign is this, is they lose Jesus. After this, it says, Jesus, he gets back in the boat. No sign will be given to you. And then what does he do? He leaves. He's gone. If my recollection is correct, this is the 12th time we meet the Pharisees in Mark's gospel. And you know what's really interesting? This is the last time they're mentioned until the death of Jesus. The Pharisees, they lost him. No more interactions with him. No more Jesus showing up on their shore to have a fight or argument or conversation with him. Jesus says, all right, I'm done. I've given you every opportunity. I've given you every chance. And you still won't believe. I'm out. Not only do they test Jesus, not only do they grieve Jesus, but they also, they lose Jesus. They missed out on their miracle because their hearts were so hard towards him. In Matthew's parallel account of this, he actually says this. In Matthew 16, 4, writing the same story from a different perspective, here's what He says, an evil and adulterous generation, they seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except for the sign of Jonah. If you remember back a couple of years ago, we preached through the book of Jonah, and the sign of Jonah is the death 
burial, and the resurrection of a great prophet. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, you know the Bible so much. Do you remember the prophet Moses who came to deliver you? Do you get it yet? Jesus is saying, do you remember the prophet Jonah as he was buried in the grave and then he resurrected three days later? Do you remember that? Do you get it yet? See, these religious people, they should have known it better than anyone else, and they still missed it. You think, this is really interesting. Why would Jesus go back to the Pharisees again? You think after fight, after fight, after fight, conflict after conflict, time after time, why does Jesus even bother with these guys? Why does Jesus keep going back to them? And here's what I believe, is that Jesus was giving them every moment to repent. That Jesus really did love these people. That Jesus really did want them to know him. That Jesus even had compassion on the Pharisees and that he would go to them over and over and over saying, here I am, do you get it yet? Here I am, do you understand it yet? Do you see it? Have you missed it? I'll come to you another time. I'll go to you another time. I'll give you every chance, every moment, every opportunity. Do you get this? And eventually, they said no. And the sign of Jonah would be that they would murder Jesus. He would go on the cross, he would be buried, and three days he would resurrect. The first time Jesus came to them was for their salvation. The second time he comes is for their damnation. Some of you are playing a really hard game with God, demanding a sign arguing with him, waiting and bidding your time. When he just fits in your nice schedule, then you'll repent. You have a moment of salvation and you don't know when the day will come where he'll get in that boat and he's gone and you're damned. You be very careful. Some of you are playing a hard game. It's a hard word, but it's because their hearts were so hard. He's gone. They test him. They grieve them, they lose them. Some of you, you're here today and you have a heart like a Pharisee, that your heart is so hard towards God to where you think, okay, God, if you just do what I tell you to do, who do you think God is that he exists to do what you say? You say, God, if you would just fill in the blanks over here and you would just make my life like this, then maybe finally, possibly, I will believe in you. That's a Pharisee heart. Jesus didn't come to give you a sign. He came that you might be saved. Stop testing him. Start trusting him and see what he'll do in your life. Start trusting in him. What do you think would have happened if the Pharisees' attitude would have been different when they came to Jesus? What do you think would have happened if instead of arguing with Jesus, they came to ask questions of him? What do you think would have been if the Pharisees would have came and said, you know, Jesus, I I got some questions. I'm not here to argue, but I really do want to learn because we've been reading the Bible and it it just doesn't necessarily make sense could you just explain this to me a little bit more? I know we've been looking for the, the coming of the Messiah, but you don't look like the Messiah we've expected. Could you please just explain this to me just a little bit more? What do you think would have happened if the Pharisees would have came, not with a hard heart, but with an open heart? Do you think Jesus would have sent them away? No. I bet Jesus would have taken time to sit down with them, to spend time with them, to be able to answer their questions. And what that goes to show is this. There is a difference between having questions and questioning. See, it's okay for you to have questions. I mean, God, we all have questions. Many of us, we have questions. We we wrestle with faith. We have doubts. We have questions. Questions are okay. I mean, questions are like, well, if God is so good, why is evil in the world? If, if God made everything, who made God? How do we know the Bible is trustworthy? How do we know that Jesus is the only way? We all have questions. There's nothing wrong with questions. There is something wrong with questioning God. That's where the problem comes. Like, if you have, pro- if you have a question, hey, come to God. 
Come to us. We'll, we'll love to. Over and over again in Mark's gospel, we see people come to Jesus with questions. They're like, Jesus, why is this happening? Jesus, what does this mean? Jesus, can you heal me? Jesus, can you, can you help me? Jesus, can you be there for me? Jesus, will you cleanse me? Jesus, will you touch me? Jesus, I don't understand. Could you help me understand? And every single time, the answer is overwhelmingly yes. Jesus is like, I'd love to be able to answer your questions. Why? Because there's a difference between questions and questioning. You know what the difference is? The heart of the person who's asking the questions. If you come to Jesus and your heart is open and you say, God, I don't understand everything, but I know that you are good and I'm going to trust you in this and I'm going to learn along the way and enter into a community of faith with other people who are going to walk with me when I'm suffering, struggling, doubting. When I have questions, I'm just going to bring them to you. I'm going to come to you. God, I don't know everything, but I want to know you. Oh, he loves to answer that prayer. But if you come to God, and you demand that God bow to you, there is no salvation for you. Jesus didn't come to give you a sign. Jesus came that you can be saved. See, some people, they miss their miracle because they demand a sign. Man, he wants for you to be saved. Which leads us to the third reason we miss our miracle is because we are forgetful and he is faithful. As the story picks up, we see in verse 14, now they have forgotten to bring bread. Okay, how many of you, you ever go out to eat to a nice restaurant, you get something really good, like you go to Jay Wilson's and you get their, their shrimp and grits and the man candy and you're like, oh babe, this is amazing. So good. And then you get in the car and you're driving home and then you, you, you get home, you tuck your kids in, and then you put on a little Netflix, and you're sitting there, and then you remember, oh, I have food in the refrigerator. This is going to be amazing. And you get up, and you go to the kitchen, you open the refrigerator, and then you realize, oh, you forgot the to-go box at the restaurants. How many of you that ever happened to you? Yeah. Right? That's the same thing that just happened here. They forgot the miracle bread. They're in the boat, and they're like, did you bring the bread? I didn't bring the bread. Thaddeus, you had one job. No wonder nobody wrote about you after this. You forgot the bread. <laughs> Thaddeus forgot the miracle bread. Total bummer, right? So they're in the boat, and they have no bread. Oh, why? Because they're forgetful. But he is faithful. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, this is Jesus, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they begin discussing with another the fact that they have no bread. I read this and I think, wow, come on, guys. Like, seriously? Okay, a lot of Jesus' ministry happens in spite of the disciples, not because of the disciples. I mean, you, you read this and I just imagine Jesus like face palming right now. He's like, they're still talking about bread. <laughs> and pray, just like, God, I know I prayed all night before I chose these men. Can I get a do-over, please? <laughs> like, these are going to be the guys that are going to change the world. Like, these are going to be the, the men who are, are going to preach Pentecost. Right? These are going to be the guys that are going to be his witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Like these dudes sitting in this boat arguing about, like, we don't have any bread, are going to be the ones who are single-handedly going to change the world forever. Like four billion people worshiping, loving, serving Jesus, a part of the church today. And 2,000 years ago, they're like, I forgot the bread. <laughs> I just think this is Jesus, right? He's just like, oh, my God. Oh, my me. <laughs> they forgot the bread they are forgetful but what is he he's going to be faithful to him and Jesus aware of this said why are you still discussing the fact that you have no bread do you not yet perceive or understand are your hearts hardened having eyes do you not yet see having ears do you not yet hear and do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? And they said to them, I imagine the boat got really quiet right there. They're like, okay, guys, 5,000 people, how many baskets? And they're like, 
uh, is this a rhetorical question, Jesus? <laughs> He's like, no, I want you to tell me how many baskets. And they were like, 12. And seven for the 4,000s. How many baskets were left over? And they're like, uh, seven. And then he said to them, do you not yet understand? Does anyone else find it interesting here? It's kind of unbelievable that in chapter six, he would do the greatest miracle. And then not even two chapters later, they think it's completely impossible. Does anybody else find it interesting that in chapter six, Jesus would take a few loaves, take a few fish, break it, pray over it, bless it, multiply it, feed an entire football stadium filled with people, and then not even two chapters later, they're like, this is impossible. Does anybody else find that to be a little bit unbelievable? But isn't that the same thing we do in our lives? Isn't it true that in one chapter, God does something amazing, and then in the next chapter, we forget that God would do something in our lives, that he would move in our lives, that he would be faithful to us in one chapter, but so many times we are forgetful in the next chapter. Just think about it like this. That chapter 6, they saw the miracle. Chapter 8, they forgot that it was possible. So he's got to do another miracle just for them. But not only is it chapter by chapter, but this is actually verse by verse. Because here they are in the first section. Jesus says, okay, guys, let me show you again. Okay, here you go. Here's a miracle. And then all of a sudden, as they're sitting in the boat, they're like, he can't do it again. Yeah, I know he fed 4,000 with seven loaves, and we only got one, and there's 12 of us. Oh, man, we're doomed. There's no more bread for us. And Jesus was right there in the boat, and they were still talking about how they had no bread. In one chapter, we trust him. In the next chapter, we don't think that he's going to do it. How many times in our life? Is it month after month? Is it day after day? Is it minute after minute where we forget his faithfulness to us? He has proven himself faithful. The problem is that you and me, we are forgetful. The reason that so many of us, we miss our miracle is because we are so forgetful. I mean, I have to remind myself all of the time, just Byron, think about his faithfulness. Think about what he has done for you. Think about how he has been there for you. Think about how he has never forsaken you, never given up on you, never walked out of you. Just think how faithful he has been to you every single day. I have to remind myself of his his faithfulness. I need to be like, Byron, okay, think, think, think. Do you remember whenever you and Ashley first got married and you were so broke that you couldn't decide, do I buy groceries or do I pay rent? And you decided to pay rent and you showed up and there was a bag of groceries sitting on your doorstep. I was faithful to you. Do you remember whenever you had no money in the bank and you're trying to figure out what you were going to do for your family. And then a guy walks up to you and gives you a Pentecostal handshake with $300 in it, just enough for you to go to buy food for your family. Do you remember when I was faithful to you? Byron, come on, think about it. Do you remember his faithfulness? Do you remember how you and Ashley prayed for years and years and after miscarriage and tears, there was no children and you started saving up for in vitro and the very next week, she was pregnant. I was faithful to you. Byron, do you remember God's faithfulness? Come on, just think about it. Do you remember when you had no money to launch the church and then a guy from Houston called and cut you a check for $30,000 so you could open the doors of this church? I was faithful to you. Do you remember whenever the gig kicked you out in the very same week you said, I don't care because we just signed the lease? Do you remember when he was faithful to you? Do you remember when Steak and Shake bought the old Parkdale First Assembly and then gave you the $50,000 so you can move into this warehouse. I was faithful to you. He's been faithful. 
in every season of our lives, he has been faithful. Chapter one, faithful. Chapter two, guess what he was? Faithful. In chapter three, guess what Jesus was? Faithful. Chapter four, faithful. Chapter five, faithful. Chapter six, faithful. Chapter seven, faithful. Chapter eight, faithful. And if you don't come back next week, guess what he's going to be? He will be faithful. He's faithful. Don't be so forgetful. He is faithful. Which leads us to our final point. Some people miss their miracle because they see a problem when he has provision. Some people miss their miracle because they want a sign and he wants to save. Some people miss their miracle because they are forgetful when he is faithful. And then the last thing is this. We miss our miracle because we see a miracle. But he wants to show us so much more. The last line here says this, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? What is Jesus talking about? Because he just explained to them the miracle, and then he follows it up and says, do you not understand? See, when you read this section of scripture, what do you see? On the surface, you see the miracle. You think, okay, yeah, he did a miracle. He fed all these people. Yay, he did that before. And we still look at it and we still see the miracle, but he actually wants to show them something so much more than just a miracle. In fact, Mark 8 is really kind of a retelling of Mark 6 and 7. Okay, different stories, but it's the same big idea. He wants to show you something, but you've missed it. So if the slide guys can go ahead and throw that up, up there, I want to show you guys this. Got a little technology for you. Look at that. I got a laser pointer, week two. <laughs> so in this section of scripture, when we dive back into Mark from last series we did, we saw a sermon over Herod. How many of y'all remember that sermon? Awkward, right? <laughs> so we did the Herod sermon. Okay, you can go listen to that. It's called The Death of John the Baptist. People left our church over it. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have told you all that, should I? <laughs> and guess who shows up here? 815, look at it. What does it say? Herod. Oh, Jesus is trying to show them something. So you can actually look at it. So in 631 through 41, Jesus feeds the multitudes. And then here, 81 through 9, Jesus feeds the multitudes. After that, where do they go? They get in a boat. 645 through 56, story takes place in a boat. 810 takes place in a boat. The Pharisees show up, want to argue with Jesus. 7, 1 through, through 23, 8, 11 through 13, Pharisees show back up again. Conversation about bread with the Syrophoenician woman. 724 through 30, 814 is another conversation about bread. Then there is a miraculous healing of the deaf and mute man. 731 through 36. Next week, we're going to see another man get healed. And then it culminates with the great confession. In 737, where it says Jesus has done all things well, which finishes in 827 through 30, the chapter 8, where Peter makes the confession, you are the Christ. Jesus is bringing him all the way back around again. He's saying, you missed it the first time. I'm going to do it again. You weren't paying attention the first time. I'm going to do it again. You didn't recognize it the first time, so I'm going to do this one more time, and here's what I want to show you. Not just the miracle. I want you to see something so much more. What is the one constant in every single one of those stories? Is that Jesus was right there with them. Jesus is bending over, and he's saying, do you not get it yet? Do you not understand it yet? Do you not see it yet? Do you not perceive? Do you not get it? Do you not, are you not understanding what I'm trying to show you? The whole time you've been looking for the miracle and you missed it because the miracle was right in front of your face. The miracle is me. Jesus was the miracle because Jesus was their provider. 
See, some people miss their miracle because you're thinking about provision. Oh, no, no, no. You need to be thinking about your provider. Some people, they miss out on their miracle because they, they want the sign. No, you need a savior. Some people are missing on their miracle because they're so forgetful, but he is the one who has been faithful. Jesus is saying, do you not get it yet? I am your miracle. The miracle is me. I am enough for you. The miracle is that he would get in the boat with them and he would say, guys, do I have to tell you again? Do I have to show you again? Let me, let me do it again. See, the miracle is this, is that God would come and he would be with us. Even when we don't understand. The greatest miracle is the gospel. The greatest miracle is that God, eternally God, second member of the Trinity, would step down from heaven and enter into this world in our hurting and broken. He would see us in our need, and he would love us. He would see us with hard hearts, and he would still come to save us. That he would see us, even though we forget, he doesn't mind sitting down one more time and saying, let me explain it to you again. The greatest miracle is that God would be with us. The greatest miracle is that Jesus would go to the cross in our place, that he would substitute himself for our sins, and that he would resurrect like Jonah, and he would give us life. That's the greatest miracle. Jesus saying, do you get it yet? This is who I am. This is who I am which goes to show us something very important. Proximity does not equal intimacy. Proximity does not equal intimacy. See, for the disciples, they were with Jesus. But they still didn't know him. They knew what Jesus could do, but they didn't know who he was. They had proximity, but they did not yet have Intimacy. Jesus is saying this. He said, okay, yeah, you know me for what I can do, but you don't know me for who I am. They would sit in the boat with Jesus, and they still didn't understand. They would go to the Bible studies with Jesus, and they still didn't understand. They would see him heal, preach, teach, cast out demons, and they still didn't understand. They would sit face to face with their miracle, and they still did not even see it. Why? Proximity does not equal intimacy. You can come to church every single week and still not know who Jesus is. You can know all of the songs, raise your hands, even take communion, and you can still not know who Jesus is. You can go to a community group, and you can still not know him. You can be on a serve team and still not know him. You can grow up in a good little Southern Baptist church. You can start speaking in tongues at Royal Rangers in your AG church, and you could go off to serve at Chi Alpha. You could go, and you could do anything. You could memorize Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and guess what? At the end of the day, if you don't don't know him, it doesn't make any difference. He says, do you understand? Do you get it? Do you know it? Do you know me? Proximity does not equal intimacy. Jesus is saying, guys, I want you to know me so much. I want you to know me. I want you to see me. I want you to follow me. I want you to be with me. Some people miss their miracle because all they're looking for is a miracle. When the truth is this, he wants to show you so much more. He wants you to know who he is. That is the miracle. Some of you are here today and you're like the crowd. You're in need. Jesus meets needs because he is your provider. Some of you, you're here today and you are like the Pharisees. You have a hard heart. But I want you to know if you come to him with your questions, he will answer those questions along the way. Just follow him. 
Stop testing him. Start trusting him and give your life to him today. And then some of you, you're like the disciples. You are forgetful. He's going to say over and over again, I'll tell you who I am one more time. Let's do it again. Let's go through it again. Do you understand yet? I'm faithful to you. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a quick challenge. Underneath your seat, there is a note card. Go ahead and hold up your note card. Right here in your seat, what I want you to do is this. We're going to move into our time of communion. And here's what I want you to do. Before you come forward and take communion, I want you to write one thing that Jesus has done in your life, one thing that God has been faithful to you. And as you come forward for communion, I want you to leave it right here on the altar. And I want to have stories of God's faithfulness to remind us every single week about how good God is to us. I titled this sermon, Jesus Feeds the 4,000. You know why I left it that same title? Because when you need this one again, you'll know that you can go back and you can find it and that it's always there for you in the same way that Jesus will always be right there with you. Next time you're reading through Mark and you see Jesus feeds 4,000 and you think, man, I have forgotten. You can go back and you can find it because guess what the sermon's called? Jesus Feeds 4,000. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.